Well, good morning. It is Eric Erickson here, the day after the State of the Union. Welcome. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let me begin here. I'm... Yeah, we're, I've got lots of audio to play. Uh, I, I, I've, I interviewed David Perdue 20 minutes ago. We'll get to David Perdue's take on the speech uh, at the bottom of the hour. Uh, let me let me tell you a, a nutshell thing here with the State of the Union last night is I actually do think, regardless of my views on on the president or anything else, I think it was one of the best State of the Union addresses. And and let me explain before you get mad at me if you're on the left, yelling at me for, oh, you're a sellout, you, you never trap it, you, you sell it out to the president. No, 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 let, let me explain this. Uh, and, and I think this is important for everyone to understand why I think it was one of the best State of the Union addresses. And, and I've gotten needled by a lot of people for saying this last night uh, until I explain this point. Optics matter in the 21st century, and this is a reality TV presidency, whether you like it or not. Uh, season four thus far is, is proven to be amazing for this presidency. And what people no longer remember are lines from speeches. I remember Ronald Reagan's speech after the Challenger disaster uh, in 1986, uh, in January of 86, they slipped the surly bonds and touched the face of God. I, I remember that. I remember Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. I remember George W. Bush's access of evil. Now, not all these lines came from State of the Union addresses, obviously. But I, I remember those lines from childhood, the monumental lines. We don't have a lot of soaring rhetoric in this country anymore. We don't have a lot of lines that people remember. And State of the Unions have become, since Bill Clinton, really, uh, laundry lists of, of agenda items. People forget it was Ronald Reagan who started using the gallery uh, to recognize people. It was the there was a, a crash. Gosh, I mean, I was I was tiny at the time, uh, but I've gone back and I've seen the speech. Um it was in, um, oh, when was it? Uh, it was Arlen Williams Jr. Arlen Williams Jr. was on a Florida air flight out of, uh, there used to be an airline called Florida Air. It was, I think it was a 737. Uh, this was in the very early 1980s. The Potomac was frozen over. The plane had ice on the wing. The, the plane crashed in the Potomac. Uh, a lot of people died. Uh, Arlen Williams was one of the survivors, made it to shore, realized there were people trapped in the plane, and continued to go back until his body was not found. He succumbed to hypothermia and drowned, uh, saving people out of the plane. And, and Ronald Reagan, that, that plane crash happened right before the State of the Union, and Ronald Reagan used that to to honor the people who had died in the flight and to honor men like Arlen Williams. And, and his family was there, if I recall right, uh, to honor him. And since then, it became a thing where presidents would invite people into the gallery, a couple of people, and they would they would recognize people. When Bill Clinton became president, states of the union they they were less and less about soaring rhetoric, and they were more and more about laundry lists of items. Here's what I'm going to do. And part of this came because Ann Richards lost to George W. Bush. This is your history lesson for the morning. I realize it deviates from everything, but bear with me. There's a point here. In 1994, with the Republican Revolution and Newt Gingrich sweeping control, uh, Ann Richards lost to George W. Bush in Texas. And I, I distinctly remember it was it was one of Bill Clinton's closest advisors told me Ann Richards called Bill Clinton and said, you're going to lose in 96 because you're going to do what you're going to make the mistake I made. The mistake I made is I told everyone in Texas, and this is Ann Richards saying it, I, I, I told everyone in Texas what I had done for them. 
and I did not tell them what I was going to do for them in a second term. And in 95, Bill Clinton began this laundry list State of the Union. Gone was the soaring rhetoric, and it was, here's everything I'm going to do. Here, here's, here's the punch list of agenda items. And it was a way to contrast the Republicans, the, the, the do-nothing Republicans who had run on a contract with America, and then it didn't do a lot of things. They, they met the veto pin, and they ultimately were able to balance a budget together. But when Bill Clinton started doing the laundry list of items, he started inviting people into the gallery who were benefiting from similar policies and how many more Americans could benefit. And this became a thing. And then George W. Bush did it, and then Barack Obama did it. But it's still, everything was grounded in the speech. It wasn't grounded in the spectacle. And no one remembers the speeches. As I said yesterday, this is one of my problems with States of the Union addresses is, is we, we pour all of the, the, the rhetoric and the deep thought and the punditry into the meaning and, and where we're going to go and what the impact is going to be and, and where the president is. And by Friday, everybody's moved on. We probably will not be talking about the State of the Union on Friday. Something else will have happened. Impeachment happens tomorrow or today. The impeachment acquittal happens today, and that'll be a bigger story by Friday. No one, and this is why I think this is one of the best presidential State of the Unions ever, because no one remembers the lines anymore. The, the rhetoric sucks these days. Presidents could elevate our collective sense, but in an election year, he's running for re-election. He's trying to not just woo the base, but bring in some other people. And so so he's got a, a grab bag of here's what I've done for you and here's what I'm going to do for you stuff. People don't remember the lines, but they remember the moments. They remember the visuals. They remember the family reunion of the soldier coming home. By the way, did you know that they locked the guy out? He couldn't get in. That's That, that was the delay. There was a delay after the president announced he was he was coming back in. And it was the sergeant at arms of the House of Representatives refused to unlock the door, said it was a security issue. And the White House had to tell the sergeant at arms, either you're going to unlock the door or the first lady of the United States is going to go open the door. And the sergeant at arms, this is the New York Times report. It has been confirmed by the White House and by House sources. The sergeant at arms said lock the door. They weren't going to let the guy in as a security measure. It is a standing rule of the House. And Melania Trump threatened to open the door if they didn't let the man in. So they let him in. So you had that moment. You had the Tuskegee Airmen that the president uh, gave a, a promotion to. He's 100 years old, there with his great-grandson. You had the family whose daughter had been killed by ISIS there, and you had the, the sentimental moment of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff waving to them, a uh, tear in his eye. You certainly had the moments of the president refusing to shake Nancy Pelosi's hand and, and Nancy Pelosi tearing up the speech. The, those were the bookends to, to the night, uh, moments of incivility, but in between... You, you had these stirring moments for conservatives. You had the Rush Limbaugh moment, which I'll get to. Conserv of course, the left hated that moment. They're, they're still in meltdown today over that. But you had these, these visual moments for a, a reality TV nation that no longer memorizes lines of speeches, that no longer memorizes text, but memorizes memories. It preserves those memories on Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and the like, as much as you can preserve stuff on Snapchat. You, you've got... You had a president who played to that instinct. You had a president who played to the visuals in a way that no prior president, including Barack Obama, had done. That's why this was such a good speech, because three weeks from now, a month from now, there's not a person alive on planet Earth who is going to remember what President Trump said in that speech. But they're going to remember those two kids reuniting with their dad. 
they're going to remember that mother and her child who's going to now go to a better school. And they're probably going to remember the Democrats did not clap for that black family. They're going to remember the Tuskegee Airmen. Will they remember that the, the Democrats did not clap for that American hero? They're going to remember those things. They'll remember Nancy Pelosi tearing up the speech and the left will like it. Will the rest of the nation like it? You know, remarkably, one of the president's, it is the president's superpower. The president's superpower is he has a unique ability to make other people behave in the way they think he behaves. You think the president uh, is a crass, uh, vulgar person? Suddenly you start behaving like a crass, vulgar person. It's it's striking to me uh, that he was able to get under Nancy Pelosi's skin in the way he did last night at the State of the Union. Typically, the Speaker of the House announces to the House of Representatives, it is my high pleasure and distinct privilege to introduce the President of the United States. She did not do that last night. The President did not shake her hand. At the end of the speech, she very notably rips the speech up. These little moments do matter over time, but it's the memories that matter. It's the storytelling woven into the memory that helps connect them. And the president is very good at that because he's a reality TV guy. So you can hate him and you can hate the speech. And there were parts of the speech that, that I'm horrified by. And we'll get to that as well. But don't deny this is one of the best State of the Union addresses because everyone's going to remember those moments in ways they rarely remember States of Union speeches. Uh, let me just get this out of the way. The, the, the most horrific moment of the speech. And it's bad it, it, for, for a conservative who actually does care about the size and scope of the federal government. It's bad. Uh, one of the very few bipartisan standing ovation moments was we are back yet again at Infrastructure Week. We have uh, collectively gone through infrastructure week so many times over the last few years. I am sickened by infrastructure week. And yet we continue to go back to infrastructure week. And all infrastructure week is is a bipartisan commitment to bankrupting the federal government. And, you know, so it was it's Everett Dirksen who was credited with the line. I don't know that it was actually him, but it is a it is a very good line. And the line was that uh, there are two parties in Washington. There is the stupid party and there is the evil party. And they rarely get along. But every once in a while they get together and they do something that is both stupid and evil. And we herald that as a bipartisan accomplishment. And that is essentially what happened with the president's State of the Union address last night, uh, that a, this is a speech designed in large part to rally the, the, the mob of Congress across aisles to spend more of your money at a time that this nation is going bankrupt. And I hate that tremendously. I hate that we have a party in Washington that claims to be uh, concerned about the size and scope of the federal government. And yet what this uh, party does is it joins the Democrats repeatedly to spend our money, money that we increasingly don't have, money that we are increasingly in debt to other nations for. Uh, yeah, I talked to David Perdue a little bit about this. Now, I, again, David Perdue joins me at the bottom of the hour. We recorded it right before I came on air. He, he had to go get ready for the impeachment stuff. Um, but it, this is it is a deep frustration to me. 
And it should be a deep frustration to everyone, I think, that, that we have such bipartisan willingness to spend our money and no bipartisan willingness to actually uh, cut taxes or, well, uh, cut spending, reform the tax code, grow the economy more than we're growing the economy through deregulation uh, beyond what the president's already done and, and deal with entitlement reform. I mean, 60 percent of our budget is on autopilot with Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid and the like. And now the president wants to do more infrastructure spending. He wants to put rockets to send rockets to the moon so that then we can send people to Mars. The Democrats even applauded that. I think they had visions of the president being on the first mission to Mars and not coming back. And, and they were excited by that. But man, what the president did last night is he began his reelection campaign. And that matters. And he did it in ways that rile up the Democrats, but actually has a lot of bipartisan street cred. I heard on CNN last night, I think it was David Axelrod saying that the uh, the sanctuary cities and no health care for illegal aliens is a moment that plays to the president's base. There's actually a, a ton of polling out there that that is a bipartisan issue. And, and making the fight last night about immigration actually plays across the aisle. It actually plays well with Hispanic voters and black voters as well. That's one thing the Democrats uh, miss is that cracking down on immigration actually works with Hispanic voters who took the time to do it the legal way. A better tomorrow for all Americans also requires us to keep America safe. That means supporting the men and women of law enforcement at every level, including our nation's heroic ICE officers. Last year, our brave ICE officers arrested more than 120,000 criminal aliens charged with nearly 10,000 burglaries, 5,000 sexual assaults, 45,000 violent assaults, and 2,000 murders. Tragically, there are many cities in America where radical politicians have chosen to provide sanctuary for these criminal, illegal aliens. You know, that actually plays well with a lot of Americans beyond the conservative heartland. And that Democrats don't get that, I think, uh, is, is a harbinger of bad things to come for them. They're, they're having a terrible week already. But I, I, I got to tell you, you know, one of the, the frustrating things, and, and thank goodness uh, Charlie, who, who cuts up the clips for me, got rid of all the applause. That's the most frustrating thing about these days. It's not that we spend so much time and then everybody forgets them two days later. It, it's, it's not all that. The thing that aggravates me the most about a state of the union, if I were president of the United States, I would go in and would begin my speech saying, ladies and gentlemen, don't applaud me. I realize it may hurt me with the crowd watching on TV, but stop. I could call you people idiot uh, monkeys and you would stand up and applaud. Stop applauding every word that I say. And you know they would stand up and applaud when I said that. I mean, give it a rest, people. The president last night could have said two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen produce a molecule of water. And they were yeah! the sky is blue. Yeah, I mean, come on, people. Let the man do a speech. That that is the 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 most the thing that aggravates me the most, and always has, going all the way back to when George H. W. Bush was president. I was really paying attention to the states of the union, and then it was more bipartisan, and they didn't do it as much. And now it's like every other sentence, the party that that the president belongs to stands up and cheers. I got to go to the bathroom. It's just it's it's stupid. It aggravates me. But it was an amazing way to kick off his reelection, including targeting black voters, which we need to get into when we come back.
It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to give your reaction to the State of the Union, feel free, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. The president, let let me play a little more of the president last night, and, and we need to get into the impact of the president trying to woo the black community. Van Jones on CNN last night raising the alarm for Democrats, but a little more of the president first. And just weeks ago, for the first time since President Truman established the Air Force, more than 70 years earlier, we created a brand new branch of the United States Armed Forces. It's called the Space Force. In the gallery tonight, we have a young gentleman and what he wants so badly, 13 years old, Ian Lonfay. He's an eighth grader from Arizona. Ian, please stand up. Ian has always dreamed of going to space. He was the first in his class and among the youngest at an aviation academy. He aspires to go to the Air Force Academy, and then he has his eye on the Space Force. As Ian says, most people look up at space. I want to look down on the world. But sitting behind Ian tonight is his greatest hero of them all, Charles McGee was born in Cleveland, Ohio, one century ago. Charles is one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen, the first black fighter pilots, and he also happens to be Ian's great-grandfather. Incredible story. After more than 130 combat missions in World War II, he came back home to a country still struggling for civil rights, and went on to serve America in Korea and Vietnam. On December 7th, Charles celebrated his 100th birthday. A few weeks ago, I signed a bill promoting Charles McGee to Brigadier General. And earlier today, I pinned the stars on his shoulders in the Oval Office. General McGee, our nation salutes you. Thank you, sir. You know, that was a powerful moment for multiple reasons, one of which is he's the last surviving member of the Tuskegee Airmen. For those of you who don't know, uh, the Tuskegee Airmen uh, was an Air Corps of of, uh, young black men out of Tuskegee who in World War II would fly P-51 Mustangs to protect the bombers as they were on their runs into Germany. And there's a movie called Red Tails about them, and the reason they call them the Red Tails is they painted the tails of their planes red so the Nazis would know they were dealing with the Tuskegee Airmen. And they had huge successes in the air over Germany and Italy uh, and France. And he's the last surviving one. Congress agreed to his promotion to Brigadier General. And the president did the ceremony uh, the other day at the White House. They held him there for the State of the Union last night to uh, salute him, to honor him. And the Democrats wouldn't stand for that. Some of them did, but most of them did not. And that was notable. And there was the young lady who, from a black family in Philadelphia, single mom, going to improve her education with an opportunity scholarship. And they didn't clap for that. Again, that's why this speech was so meaningful is there were the optics of the speech worked fully to Donald Trump's advantage, whether you like the speech or not. And there are parts of it I didn't care for. But it worked to his advantage and it worked remarkably well to his advantage. 
When we come back, uh, Senator David Perdue is going to join me for his take. Uh, talk to him about impeachment a little bit and his own reelection. And then I want to get into some of the more nuts and bolts of the State of the Union. The media reaction to it, the Chris Matthews audio of before the speech and after the speech is absolutely hysterical. It is worth sticking around just to hear Chris Matthews uh, go from, well, from one extreme to the other. Uh, the Democrats know they've had a bad week so far, and so there's no signs of improving for them. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. If you want to call in, share your thoughts on the State of the Union, the phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Before the show began today, I actually sat down with uh, Senator David Perdue. He was in Washington, D.C., Making the rounds, of course, he will be on the ballot in... When will David Perdue be on the ballot? David Perdue will be on the ballot in uh, November. He will be running against an as-of-yet unnamed Democrat. And, well, I wanted to let you guys in on the conversation we had just a little while ago. Yeah, okay, give me one second. One, two, three. Join... That was very unprovided. I should have cut that out, shouldn't I have? I, I thought I did. Uh, we actually, just so you, so I'll give you the background since you heard that. I had to do this by my cell phone, believe it or not, and then master uh, trimming the audio myself uh, this morning uh, because he had to call in early and, well, I needed to make it happen. So I did. That's why you hear me counting down as we record the conversation. Thankfully, you didn't hear, hear the prior conversation where I was lamenting having to be a single parent this morning with my wife out of town. Now, here's the conversation. Joining me from Washington, D.C., Senator David Perdue. Uh, Senator, b- before we get into the uh, into the speech last night, I, I just I got to ask you about this week for I, I can't recall the Democrats having a week as bad as they've had with with Iowa Monday today, the impeachment vote and yesterday, a state of the union where the president I've never actually seen someone get under Nancy Pelosi's skin as, as well as the president did last night when she ripped up the speech. It's things just aren't going well. And, and the president is at an all time high in job approval. Well, the American people have a stark contrast, um, not only between the Obama administration, where we had eight years of the lowest economic output in U.S. history, but you have right now uh, the Democrats not able to, to uh, pull off a reasonable investigation in the House. They, they had a, a totally illegitimate process. Then they screwed up the, uh, the Iowa. I don't, still don't even know if they've got that fixed yet. They, they don't seem to be. And then what we saw last night, the petulance on the floor by the Democrats in the House of Representatives, uh, what Nancy Pelosi, what people focus on is Nancy, but I focused on the members. They wouldn't even stand up, Eric, for a Tuskegee Airman general, an American hero, a a little girl who was now given a scholarship. My goodness. I mean, if you can't stand up for that, that's America. It shows that they're really not concerned about the, the, you know, the good of the country. They just want power. It was striking to me that the president is giving an opportunity scholarship to a, a, a black child in Pennsylvania whose Democratic governor shut down a scholarship program that she could have taken advantage of. And the Democrat response was to sit on their hands. Here's the federal government helping uh, someone in the minority community. And the Democrats seem to be offended by it. It, it. The stunning contrast and the president's willingness. We hear Republican politicians all the time say we're going to go out and get the African-American vote. And here comes this president from a Super Bowl ad Sunday night to this, clearly intending to keep this promise to go after the African-American community. 
Well, he set that out when he ran the first time. So did I. And look, between HBCUs he talked about last night, opportunity zones, school choice, I mean, this president, unemployment, this president has done more for the African-American community than anybody since Lincoln. And I can say that and back it up with facts. What happens in that community, though, is they're being pandered to by the Democrats because they've always uh, been blessed by the African-American community voting monolithically Democratic. And so I think the cracks are beginning to show up because the results speak for themselves, Eric. They do. And if from jobs to, I mean, it really is amazing how much the Hispanic community, the black community, the every racial and economic group in this country has benefited from the president's economy. The Democrats obviously don't want to get him credit. And last night, what we heard is he wants to continue this economic growth in the country and use that, I guess, as his benchmark for reelection. Well, he should. I mean, by growing the economy, we not only put people back to work, we created seven and a half million new jobs, have the the highest middle class income, the lowest quartile of our earners have, have actually had the biggest increases. We have the lowest unemployment in 50 years, the lowest African-American, Asian, Hispanic unemployment uh, ever measured. I, I can do this all day, Hugh. I mean, this, the results are, are surprising. If you look at what he did in the first 10 minutes of his speech and just listen to the results, what he was doing in his mind is going back to all the promises, and he said this, I'm going back to all the promises he made during the campaign, the early days of his, uh, his uh, administration, and he's checking the boxes. I've been in meetings where he actually does that, and he really raises hell if they haven't gotten a lot of results yet. We're focused now on immigration, trade, obviously, and, uh, and infrastructure, and then dealing with pharmaceutical costs and surprise billing. Um, th- this is the president. The other thing he said last night, which I think is huge, Eric, for Georgia, is uh, vocational training. Now, we've yes. been doing that for years in Georgia, but what, by having a president focused on that right now, that, that is huge. That bodes very strongly for our future. You mentioned infrastructure. It was one of the few moments of, of bipartisan applause, standing ovation. I got to tell you, I'm I'm concerned about our track record lately of trillion dollar deficits and 23 trillion in debt, and neither party seems interested in actually dealing with that issue, which I think is going to become more and more of an important one. Eric, you're exactly right. Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, you know that that's why I, that's what pulled me in here was the debt. By growing the economy, we've lowered, actually lowered the debt uh, curve by about $2 trillion a year, and yet this year we'll still have a trillion-dollar shortfall. You know, what I've looked at is there's several things that we've got to do, and the biggest thing is we've got to get after our mandatory expenditures, which are Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, pension and benefits for federal employees, and the interest on that. You heard the president last night talk about protecting Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. He's exactly right. The problem with our debt is this. The budget only covers about 30% of our total spending as a country. And that's what we call discretionary. We spend less on discretionary spending in the federal government today as a percentage of the economy than than we did in 2011. We've all been working on that up here. Since I got here, we've been focused on that. So we've got that going in the right direction. But the mandatory expenses are not part of the budget process. And that's one of the issues. We've got to save Social Security and Medicare, Eric. You've talked about it on your show. They, those trust funds go to zero in a very short period of time, and the president now is bringing this out publicly, and I am so delighted that he called that out last night. Well, that's good to hear. Now, what do you expect moving forward? The, the odds are typically we get to Friday and everyone has forgotten the speech. We'll remember the, the great optics of the Rush Limbaugh uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom, the reunion of the family, uh, but it seems like we give these speeches now, we make a big do out of them over a couple of days, and then everybody forgets them by next week. 
Well, I'll tell you what they won't forget. Uh, I tend to agree with you. The way the news cycle works in Washington, I mean, my goodness, there's a shiny object, a new shiny object every day. But what people back in, in mainstream America uh, realize is what's going on with the results. They now know that this what this president was talking about actually worked. You know, we believe in limited government, fiscal responsibility, uh, you know, freedom for everybody, and economic opportunity for everybody. And that's what this president is proving. If we can stay focused on that, um, his second term could be extremely powerful. And look what we're doing with our allies and trade. I would have never believed, Eric, you and I talked about this off the record many years ago, five, six years ago, that about TPP. I happen to be supportive of TPP because I was worried about China. I would have never believed that in three years this president would have gotten South Korea, Japan, uh, Mexico, Canada, and China into really substantive trade deals in three years. I wouldn't have believed it. It really is amazing how he's been able to get them on board. And frankly, I think his his willingness to draw a hard line with China, I, I've been skeptical of it. I've told you I was skeptical of it. It turns out it worked. And and it's also helping create jobs here in Georgia. Look, I, I know we got a limited amount of time and, and I don't want to keep you, but I do want to pivot to Georgia real quick. No, I don't want to ask you about the Collins Leffler race because frankly, I'm tired of talking about it. I want to ask about your race uh, here in Georgia. The economy is going well. Everything's going well. And it, it seems like the Democrats in Georgia are having a real hard time trying to come up with something to, to go after you on, which, I mean, is to your credit. But how, how do you see the, the state of your race playing out? Well, I think what we saw in the governor's race, Eric, is that the Democrats have a new model. Uh, they, they, they tested it in Texas in the Ted Cruz race and in Georgia in Brian Kemp's race for governor, where they put, you know, as many as 800 paid employees on the ground for two years, funded by George Soros and Michael Bloomberg and Steyer and, and a few others. And so they, they convinced themselves it's not as important to uh, the candidate and the issues are not as important as just the physical ability to go harvest their vote. And so that's what they're doing. I think you're going to see a very confused space in Georgia now with uh, this jungle general election in November. It causes a problem for the president and me. But we're focused on the, the real issue. And the real issue is we don't want to move to a socialist agenda nationally or in the state. And so I'm going to be the guy in the breach there, working for the president, working for my team. We're going to make sure that the road to socialism does not run through the state of Georgia. Works for me. Senator, listen, thanks very much for taking time out. I, I very much appreciate it. I know you got a busy day ahead of you, and, and I appreciate you taking the stand you're going to take later today on impeachment. Well, Eric, it, uh, that's the easiest vote I'll ever have to take in the United States Senate. But I so appreciate what you're doing. Keep getting the truth out there, man. Thank you. Take care. That was Senator David Perdue. Talked to him earlier this morning, right before the show started. He's got a busy day ahead of him, as as you heard. His, the easiest vote he will ever take uh, being his vote for the president in the impeachment battle. Now, um, I, I, one of the things we talked about as well was the president's outreach to the African-American community. I want to play this audio of the president last night. At his speech, it was notable the Democrats refused to stand up for this. The next step forward in building an inclusive society is making sure that every young American gets a great education and the opportunity to achieve the American dream. Yet for too long, countless American children have been trapped in failing government schools. To rescue these students, 18 states have created school choice in the form of opportunity scholarships. The programs are so popular that tens of thousands of students remain on a waiting list. One of those students is Janiah Davis, a fourth grader from Philadelphia. Janiah. 
She would do anything to give her daughter a better future. But last year, that future was put further out of reach when Pennsylvania's governor vetoed legislation to expand school choice to 50,000 children. Janaya and Stephanie are in the gallery. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here with your beautiful daughter. Thank you very much. But Janaya, I have some good news for you, because I am pleased to inform you that your long wait is over. I can proudly announce tonight that an opportunity scholarship has become available. It's going to you, and you will soon be heading to the school of your choice. Now I call on Congress to give one million American children the same opportunity Janiah has just received. Pass the Education Freedom Scholarships and Opportunities Act because no parent should be forced to send their child to a failing government school. Now, the Democrats did not applaud for that. This is an African-American mother and her child, and she's going to get a better education. The Democrats say they want everyone to have a good education, that they want everyone to have have the benefit of, of a great education, and the president is now doing this, and they didn't want to applaud it. This gets to a point that Van Jones made on CNN that you you need to hear what Van Jones is talking about, and Democrats need to take notice. Van Jones understands the black community well. He's a, a good guy. You know, I, I know Van Jones. He's actually a very nice guy, a tremendously like Van Jones. Uh, we, we disagree politically about a lot of things, but he's, he's you know why I like Van, honestly? And, and this is the, the thing that in the, when I was in the media, when I, when I was in CNN and, and Fox News, I was amazed that a lot of us wound up all liking the same people, regardless of politics, uh, for one reason. Those who actually, they, they weren't political hacks, they actually believed something. And I, I like someone on the left who I may vehemently disagree with ideologically. I may uh, disagree with him politically, but I know that they're coming from an, an item of, of principle. They're not doing it because they're bought and paid for. They're doing it because they fundamentally believe it, ideologically believe it. And I can respect that even if I disagree with them. And, and that's where I, I land with Van Jones. We have a lot of fundamental philosophical disagreements. But it, for him, it comes from a place of principle and values. And while I think he's wrong and he thinks I'm wrong, I I very much appreciate uh, where he comes from and and his willingness to be honest, to be intellectually honest, to be willing to call out his own side. Uh, And so listen to this. I I think the the last 24 hours have been a big wake-up call for Democrats. That's what I think. Um, The Iowa caucus was a debacle. Uh, And this was a very strong speech, and it shows what he thinks he needs to do to win. I think we have to be very clinical about this. I think you're exactly right. Uh, he knows he's got to give a lot of red meat to his base, and he gave it. What for religious liberty, abortion, all of it, the military, et cetera. Um, but he's doing something else, and it has to do with how he's going to manage race in this thing. And there seems to be a trade-off between the Latinos and the African Americans. That's what you see. He, he went hard on the sanctuary city stuff. Mm-hmm. That is very, very uh, disturbing. It turns out sanctuary cities are actually safer uh, the non-sanctuary cities, the Cato Institute, uh, which is libertarian, has come out and said uh, that you know, immigrants are committing less crime. So uh, for some reason, he thinks that doubling down on the anti-immigrant piece is a big part of his thing. At the same time, uh, a warning to Democrats, 
what he was saying to African Americans can be effective. You may not like it, but he mentioned HBCUs. Our black colleges have been struggling for a long time. A bunch of them have gone under. Uh, he threw a lifeline to them uh, in real life, in, in his budget. He talked about that. He talked about the criminal justice reform. He talked about opportunity zones. This, school choice, he about a school big choice. issue. Yeah. Listen, wake up. He doesn't have to be effective. Exactly. He has to be yeah, effective yeah, 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 to, yeah, to yeah, move yeah, margins and key states. And, and the yeah. thing about it is, and I think that we, we got to wake up, folks. There's a whole bubble thing that goes on. We say, well, he said S-hole nations, therefore all black people are going to hate him forever. That ain't necessarily so. And I think what you're going to see him do is say, you may not like my rhetoric, but look at my results, look at my record to black people. And if he narrow casts that, it's going to be effective, which means as we move through this primary process, we've got to pay a lot more attention both to what's going on with the Latino vote, um, is, is, are we going to get a benefit in terms of you know, having them respond, and with the black vote, is there going to be a split off, for, especially for black male voters? We got to be clinical about this stuff. We get so emotional about it. That was a that was a warning to us, a warning shot across the bow of Democrats that he's going after enough black folks to cause those problems. It's not just the white suburban voters. He's going after black vote. I, I, you know, he's right, and uh, I, I really don't have anything to add to that except look at Florida. Look at Florida in 2018. Andrew Gillum, uh, the black mayor of Tallahassee who ran for governor, came very close to winning. Do you know one of the demographics that he lost to Ron DeSantis? Black men. That's why that's why Van Jones is focusing on this. Black men voted for Ron DeSantis by a very narrow margin in Florida, and that pushed him over the line. And there's a model there for the president, a path to victory for the president on that. And a lot of Democrats don't take it seriously because they've taken the black vote for granted for so long, they're just convinced it'll stay with them. Not necessarily so. We are advancing with unbridled optimism and lifting our citizens of every race, color, religion, and creed very, very high. Since my election, we have created 7 million new jobs, 5 million more than government experts projected during the previous administration. The unemployment rate is the lowest in over half a century. And very incredibly, the average unemployment rate under my administration is lower than any administration in the history of our country. You know, I want to read you some of the Gallup polling data. The president right now has the highest ever personal approval rating, 49%. He's got 52% of Americans favoring his acquittal, 53% of Americans approving his attack on Soleimani. Uh, American economic confidence is at a 20-year high. American national satisfaction is at a 15-year high. His party, for the first time, enjoys majority approval, the first time since 2005. His party is moving into a four-point partisan ID advantage against the Democrats. He's got a dead-even split among registered voters on re-election. Now, you can dislike the president. You can say the president of the United States is a, is a terrible person. You can say all of these things, but you've also got to recognize the fact that the president of the United States is actually doing very well right now. 59% of Americans say they are better off financially than they were a year ago. That's the highest level in the history of Gallup polling. Gallup has never actually gotten that high to 59% in 40 years. Uh, 
the dot com bubble when everyone in everyone and their kid was becoming a multimillionaire because of internet stocks. The the confidence level in, in finances was at fifty eight percent. We're at fifty nine percent. Those are amazing numbers. Now I, I would note that his party is enjoying majority approval for the first time since two thousand five, and that came a year before the Republican Party was wiped out in Congress. Uh, there are cautions, uh, there are problems, and there are things to be concerned about. But right now, the Democrats are having a bad week and the president's having a very good week. You might as well enjoy it, particularly with an acquittal today in the Senate. I want to introduce you guys to a new sponsor, Blue Vine. Growing a business is hard, especially when your cash flow doesn't match the speed of your growth. I've been there. Blue Vine can provide you with access to the fast funding your business needs with funding solutions tailored to you. It's an easy, fast way to help support your business growth with a line of credit up to $250,000. Whether you need money to offset upfront costs, secure inventory, or pay an unexpected expense through Blue Vine, you can help yourself and your business stay secure for any reason. There is no fee to set up your line of credit, and Blue Vine never charges maintenance or prepayment fees. And applying is easy. You just go to getbluevine.com slash Eric. You fill out a few simple details. And when you're done with your application, it's done within minutes and you see an offer. It's not going to affect your credit score. And once approved, funds can be received in as little as 24 hours. Blue Vine has helped more than 20,000 customers and has delivered over $2.5 billion in funds for businesses. For listeners of this podcast, Blue Vine is offering a limited time promotion of a $100 gift card when you take out a loan or open a line of credit with Blue Vine. Go to getbluevine.com slash Eric for more details. All you need to do is go to getbluevine.com slash Eric and apply. It's quick, easy, meaningful way to help your business in as little as 24 hours. And the promotional offer is subject to terms and conditions that can be found at getbluevine.com slash Eric. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want to deal with it because... Between having David Perdue in the first hour and uh, dealing with the president's actual words in the State of the Union, I got to give you some of the media reaction from the State of the Union before we get into anything else today, Uh, because it it actually is somewhat funny to see the reaction and the recognition from a lot of people that, in fact, uh, the president had a great night last night. And the Democrats have had a very bad week. Here's Chris Matthews before the State of the Union address last night. Chris Matthews on on what MSNBC now. Tonight, a man will stand in the well of the U.S. House of Representatives and tell us our country has returned to greatness. He will cite numbers, numbers attached to dollar signs and brag. What he will not cite is his own moral bankruptcy. But just as he can count the credits, we can count the deficits in honesty What price do we pay for a president whose word the world knows is worthless? Ask those who gave up their savings to attend something called Trump University. Indecency. What do we tell our children of a man who breaks every rule we try to teach them? Who makes fun of people's appearances? Who mocks the handicapped? In disloyalty. What has it cost this country to have a leader who abuses our allies? Who sidles up to the world's worst tyrants? Who shows every sign of wanting to join them? Tonight, the country enters the fourth quarter of the Trump reign. He will tell us why we should love him. He will promise us the world if we only bow down and worship him. 
This sounds familiar. It's happened before. You may have read about it before, probably in church. It's the classic deal with the devil. The classic deal with the devil. Well, that was Chris Matthews before Donald Trump spoke last night. This is Chris Matthews after the president spoke. I think the people where I came from will like the speech tonight. I think regular people will not, they'll see the schmaltz, the corniness. They'll see it, but they'll like it because it's all good stuff, whatever purpose it had. And I look at something about, I watch Pelosi because I really respect her like most of us do. And I watched very, uh, the way she calibrated when to stand, when to applaud. And it was almost enormous, almost entirely the tributes to people, the individual people. She always felt that was the right thing to do, especially Juan Guaido. I'm telling you, Trump set up the fight and he laid down the, the, the gauntlet tonight about him and Bernie. It's as if he was following Bernie won and popped their vote out in, in Iowa yesterday. And there he is going after Guaido, going after socialism, obviously tying all socialism to the kind we really don't like the tyrannical socialism of the Latin Americans like Castro. He's saying, this is going to be my enemy. Great, I'm ready to fight. So I thought that was interesting. And Pelosi stood up and applauded that. that was right. She knew where this country stands. We don't like those leaders. And Bernie does. And that's a problem. <laughs> yes, it is. And the reaction, the, the people where I came from, they'll like this. Yes, they will like this. They will. The president had a good night, and it was very hard for anyone on TV to deny him that. Here's Chris Cuomo from CNN. Those were really poignant moments that came. I don't know if you saw them, but you should go online and look. And I'm going to talk to you about it more later on. The president in that speech tonight celebrated what this country is about for one set of moments, our diversity, how we overcome, how we come together. And Jake Tapper. Donald Trump is having a week that is frustrating lots of Democrats. They had their Iowa imbroglio, a fiasco in the Iowa caucus. We still don't know who won that. Uh, that caucus, and we're still waiting for results. Uh, President Trump's approval ratings, according to Gallup, are the highest they've ever been. 49% approve, 50% disapprove. That's much higher than they were when he was elected. I think his approval rating was somewhere in the 30s, and he still was elected. Um, obviously, as the State of the Union, tomorrow uh, he is about to be acquitted in the impeachment trial, an impeachment that Speaker Pelosi did not even want to do. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, for Democrats a very, very frustrating week. Yes, it is. And here's John King. All of this from CNN, by the way. Pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. This administration is in court trying to throw Obamacare off the books, and they were unable to get a deal when Republicans controlled everything to fix that. Doesn't mean the president can't say I have a proposal for it, but they're not advancing that right now. But we'll, we'll go through the fact checks after the speech. He has a remarkable moment right now. He's at the strongest political place of his presidency, heading into the re-election year. The Democrats, let's assume they figure this out and they get a nominee. We don't know who that is matters who it is, which is why the president will talk about socialism tonight. But he's going to play to his base. And the margins is about improving his standard just a little bit in the suburbs, improving his standard just a little bit with African-Americans. And, and, you know, that, that that is the relevant point here. I, I've run political campaigns. Can, can I just let me spend a few moments here. Let, let, let's go off the deep end, uh, it, not where I was planning to go, but then I, I go on a daily basis to all the stuff I was I was planning on not going to. Let, let me let me see if I, I can actually find this for you, because this is uh, the, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of winging it here, but I just I had this moment. I know I've written this before. I can find it very quickly um, there. There's a relevant point to to delve. Through. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here, here, here you go. So voters 
typically break down pretty straightforward. You've got a you got a number of, of voters will always vote Democrat. You got a number of voters who will always vote Republican. And ultimately, when you get down to it, you need about 4% of voters. You, you've got to have a ground game to get those voters. It, we've got 350 million people in the country. We've got 218 million are eligible to vote. Only 146 million of them are actually eligible. To vote. That's about 45%. Of those who are registered to vote, 126 million of them voted. Yeah, the last number I have is, is 2012. That's 39% of the total population voted. 86% of registered voters, but only 57% of people who were actually eligible to vote voted in 2012. Barack Obama won in 2012 with 51.1% of the total vote, but that was actually only 45% of registered voters, only 20.5% of the total population, and 30% of the voting age population. Now, follow along with this. So the Leadership Institute in Washington has done this. I asked them for an update a couple of years ago, and and they gave it to me. This is what it is. The the average voter engagement amounts to 25% of the voting age population across time engaging in races. In other words, if the average is 25% of the voting age population regularly votes, you need 13% of the voting age population in the United States to win. But there are some fundamentals here. Of the 25% of the voting age population that normally votes, 9% will always vote Democrat. 8% will always vote Republican. That leaves you with 8% of voters left up for grabs in the country. Now, 2% of voters are always single-issue voters. They they vote on gay rights or abortion or gun control or environment uh, or Second Amendment issues. That leaves you 6% of voters who are up for grabs. So if only 6% of voters are up for grabs, and again, <clears throat> here's why, here's why, the, let, let, me, let me back this up. So of all the people in this country who can vote, only 25% of the country actually votes. 25% of the total people in this country who can vote actually vote. 9% of that 25% always goes Republican. 8% always votes Democrat. I'm sorry, 9% always goes Democrat. 8% always goes Republican. So you need then 8% left of that 25% of the total population that votes. You got 8% of the voters left up for grabs of the 8% of voters left up for grabs. You need 4% of them, or you need 2% are going to be single issue. They're going to be abortion voters are going to be gun voters. They're going to be environmental voters. You name it. 2% of voters are single issue voters. There is only one issue they care about that issue they vote on. So that means 6% of of the total population is up for grabs. And you need 4% of that. That's what the president needs. He he needs needs to persuade 4% of the total voting population of this country to vote for him. And last time, he didn't do that. He actually lost total voters to Hillary Clinton, but he persuaded enough people in key swing states to matter. Now, for those of you who are complaining about the Electoral College, uh, keep in mind that in Iowa right now, Bernie Sanders has had more people show up at caucuses for him, but Pete Buttigieg is leading in delegates right now, uh, and the whole thing is screwed up. A defense of the Electoral College right there. 
But the president, he, he's got to persuade 4% of the population. And last time, he lost the popular vote, but he had enough voters in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Mich- Michigan to help him with the Electoral College. And he's trying for that again. If the president can get 3% more in the black community, if he can get 2% more in the Hispanic community, the president can lose some of the white voters, particularly in the suburbs, who don't like him because of his demeanor and behavior and character. If the president can do that, the president can win re-election and possibly even get popular vote. Now, I will tell you, I've talked to people who are familiar with the thinking of the president's campaign. And one of the things that they tell me regularly now is that their campaign is premised on this being the first president to lose the popular vote twice and win the election. The president himself, though, wants to win the popular vote the second time. And this is a very good week for him. This is a a very bad week for the Democrats. And when you look at the Gallup trend lines, now I will tell you that don't plant your feet or or flag in the ground on the Gallup polling. And and the reason I say that is because the last time that Republicans were as popular as they are right now in this country was a year before they were wiped out in 2006. So you've got to keep that in perspective. But what's striking is, is that the Democrats live now in a bubble that is largely shaped by Twitter. If you'll recall, several weeks ago, uh, there was a story. I cannot remember where it is now, and I can't find the audio offhand. I don't want to distract myself again to do that. But uh, there, there were there were chatter among the talking heads on, on television that one of uh, Elizabeth Warren's problems and one of uh, Kamala Harris's problems before she dropped out is that their campaigns are obsessed with what people on Twitter think. Look at the entrance polls in Iowa. Now, the, the reason there's an entrance poll, not an exit poll in Iowa is because you show up at the caucuses, you stay all night. So they talk to you on, on the way into the room, not out of the room. But only 18% of them are actively engaged in Twitter. And yet the Democrats are obsessed with winning the war on social media, winning the war on Twitter, winning the conversation on Twitter. And it shapes the way reporters handle things. Think of all the stories we've heard in the last several weeks about Nancy Pelosi being such a strategic genius and holding the impeachment articles was such a brilliant move because it built up pressure on the Senate Republicans and refusing to call those witnesses and making the Senate do it. It it, it hurt the Republicans, but it didn't. The president's now more popular than he was when he got elected. The president's more popular now than when he was on the campaign trail. I mean, the president won with, what, 46%, 47% of the popular vote, and he's at 50% right now in Gallup, 49 point something. He's roughly 50%. He's doing better now than he was on the campaign trail when he got elected. And it comes as the Democrats continue to do these little stunts like Nancy Pelosi tearing up the State of the Union address last night behind the president's back. The president should have shaken her hand. Let's just get this out of the way. The president should not have ignored her outreached hand at the beginning of the State of the Union, and she should not have torn up that that address. Children, we can do this. But the president's handshake is now greatly overshadowed by Pelosi, and it's coming out now that this was planned. She said she was going to do it. She couldn't walk down. She couldn't back down from it. She could have won the night with the president refusing to shake her hand, but the more dramatic stunt of ripping up the speech after refusing to stand for stuff, blowing up. Here's Claire McCaskill, a, a partisan Democrat who hates the president 
on MSNBC last night. And of course, Nancy Pelosi tearing up the speech. I could argue that that maybe wasn't the best idea. Um, You know, I think America wants everyone to get along and get things done. Yeah. Yeah, Claire, you're right. This doesn't go over well for a lot of people. They may not like the president, but the president has a unique superpower of dragging people down to his level. And they can't win that way. This is something unique to the president. Tim Alberta, who wrote that great book, uh, oh, what was it, American Carnage, recently came out chronicling the rise of Donald Trump in in the party. He had this great tweet a little while ago. Uh, Let me find it real quick. This is worth worth doing, uh, worth me reading here. Donald Trump is a master of forcing opponents to play the game by his rules, tearing up paper, staging walkouts. That stuff does not work. Just ask Rubio, Cruz, Hillary. The president's kryptonite is substance and reason. You cannot beat him at stagecraft and emotion. Remember when Warren's campaign nearly ended before it began because Trump baited her into the DNA test? Or when Biden talked about wanting to beat up the president? Now you hear the champagne popping at 1600 with Bloomberg's orange tan jokes. They can't beat the president at his own game. they got to play a different game for the president. And they're not willing to do that. They're not smart enough to do that. This is a huge advantage for the president. Who, you know, I, I look, I didn't think that the president would win in 2016. I wouldn't have supported him anyway for a lot of reasons we don't need to get into. I'm certainly supporting him in 2020. I, and I'm not confident about 2020. I, it, between the coronavirus and, and the economic warning signs on the horizon, there are things to be concerned with. If the economy tanks, uh, it, it hurts the president. The one thing propping up this president more than anything else is the economy. People have clearly now kind of baked in his behavior in ways they hadn't in the past. And, and it's starting to now trickle through the polling. As people get over the president's behavior and they start looking at the economy, that's all helping him. His, his campaign hinges on the success of the economy. The Democrats do, to some degree, have to root against the economy, and that's hard for them to do. But man, when they get down into the mud thinking they're going to treat the president the way he treats them, the way they perceive the president is treating them, it only works for the president. And they're going to have a harder and harder time. So I I, I feel the need to say this again. <laughs> so my, my first name is spelled E-R-I-C-K. Uh, so when you call the number eight seven seven nine seven Eric, you got to remember there's a C and a K in there eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. Yeah, I say that because we had we had somebody call in um, who <laughs> could yeah you know let me just just as an aside here so so that you understand Eric Erickson my my dad is Eric Erickson my granddad is Eric Erickson my granddad's dad is Eric Erickson my my great granddad's dad is Eric Erickson we we go all the way back. Um, a very long time. And I used to think my grandfather was making that up until I went to Sweden and met my family. And they still live uh, in the same town in the same houses uh, that my my grandfather's grandfather built. And uh, yeah, they were very insistent that, that we got a long line of, of Eric Erickson's uh, generationally. And they don't spell their name E-R-I-C-K. They spell their name E-R-I-C. And what apparently happened is my grandfather, when he was young, uh, came to this country, jumped ship in Philadelphia, went through immigration, and the immigration officer spelled his name E-R-I-C-K, E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. And it stuck uh, for him and for my American side of the family, for for my Swedish side of the family. My dad is fully Swedish, though born and raised in Coral Gables, Florida. And so it's E-R-I-C. 
if we are in northern Sweden and it is E-R-I-C-K here for our family, which is fascinating how much immigration and officers could shape things back in the, the turn of the, the 20th century. Uh, but yes, if you want to call in, it is 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K. Uh, that translates to 877-973-7425. And we are happy to take your phone calls, although not necessary. I'm perfectly happy talking for three hours without any of you calling in because uh, we got a lot to discuss, including we do need to get into the Iowa situation. And we've got news in Georgia. Just so you know, we've now got over 70 percent of Iowa has come in. And uh, things are looking really bad for Joe Biden. And I got to tell you, I had long maintained Joe Biden was the guy who we were going to he was going to be the nominee. And the White House also thought that he was was going to be the nominee. And this is, well, not turning out for him. We also do, you know, I told David Perdue on the phone earlier, and I may replay our conversation later in the show, depending on how my voice does. But um, I, I, I told the, I, I told David Perdue, I didn't really want to talk about Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins because I'm tired of it. But there is news on that front here in Georgia. Uh, Doug Collins is gone after Brian Kemp. He says it's a jungle primary, so now the governor could have solved that. We could do a primary, but he chose to want to veto that because he'd rather not have a primary. Well, that's on him. Uh, he said attacking Governor Kemp on Fox News this morning. This this race is getting very acrimonious, and the uh, the the um, the Collins campaign intends to go after the NRSC, the Club for Growth, and now the governor. Uh, so we need to talk about that. And then there's this candidate up in Rome who's running for Congress. And uh, she wanted to have an event at a restaurant. And one of the people who was at her event was wearing a red MAGA cap, a Make America Great Again cap. And believe it or not, people at the restaurant who worked at the restaurant were upset and, and and felt nervous about this. Uh, we, sh- we should discuss the, the timidity of some of these people uh, and what happened to this candidate in Rome when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425 is the phone number and... Yeah, I'm going to go on and get to Iowa. I've, I've got other stuff I want to talk about, but but I really want to get to, to Iowa right now. You know, Stacey Abrams has come out. A, a friend of mine t- uh, texted me one of her tweets and said, I, I like this parody account. Um, this is this is from uh, Stacey Abrams. Voters need to trust the election process, regardless of who is operating the system. Mistakes were made in Iowa and voters confidence has been shaken. But people should not lose faith in our democracy. We must keep voting while we demand accountability and improvement. Uh, fascinating. You know, Brian Kemp was on uh, Atlanta radio yesterday and said he heard that Stacey Abrams uh, was winning the Iowa caucus. A little bit of a dig there. Um, yeah, this is um, 
This is a gift that keeps on giving for the president of the United States. Uh, here is some CNN audio about what's going on in Iowa. Well, that's an, it's an extremely important point. And, and as uh, Niamlika and, and Dana were saying there, the IDP did come out last night saying very clearly that there was no hacking. There was no malicious uh, activity uh, surrounding this app. They were trying to quiet the concerns as the questions were growing about where these results were. We are now hearing from the Department of Homeland Security saying something similar. Uh, the acting uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, he was on Fox News earlier today uh, saying that there was uh, no hacking that was evident uh, so far, no malicious intent. What is uh, important to note, though, Wolf, is that this app, which obviously was uh, par- a vital part of the first in the nation caucuses, was not screened by the Department of Homeland Security. DH- DHS did offer to screen uh, this app for uh, hacking potential. Uh, That offer was not taken up by the IDP, uh, so they never actually got their hands on it. Now, this isn't all that rare. Um, The DHS does not want to be seen as intervening in states' elections. They don't want to be seen as interfering too much. Um, so they allow the states to, uh, to develop and screen and uh, process uh, th- this type of technology for themselves, often using local assets, uh, local vendors. But the, 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 this question has arisen um, as to why uh, no one at the federal level has, has seen this. And so what DHS tends to do is they offer advice. Uh, they offer services. They offer technology. In this case, Wolf, uh, that was not taken up by the IDP. DHS, Department of Homeland Security, uh, did not uh, get to uh, take a look at this app in terms of its uh, vulnerability for hacking. Just, 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 just ponder that for a moment, please. The Department of Homeland Security reached out to the Democrats and said, hey, we will test your app for hacking vulnerabilities. And the Democrats declined. For four years, the Democrats have told us we've got to do better with our election security. They were given an opportunity to make sure that they could improve their election security. And that's what they did. They, they, they totally failed. That's actually a a really big issue. And I mean, this is a disaster for Democrats. And and the question is, who is going to be held accountable? There are a lot of Democrats who want Tom Perez. He's the chairman of the Democratic Party held accountable for what's going on in Iowa right now. Uh, It was a bad look for him, particularly because he was so braggadocious about how they're going to bring technology into it and solve all the problems. Well, here's some of the media commentary on him. In less than 100 days, as you know, until the most transparent, successful, accessible caucus in the history of the great state of Iowa. Problems with the reporting process in last night's caucuses means there are no official results from Iowa to report. Nothing. You've seen some dumpster fires in your lifetime. Where does this rank? This is pretty high. We're talking about a lot of embarrassing things that happened last night. What we have this morning so far is chaos. I mean, it's chaos. If an impeachment trial is unfolding right around the same time, the caucuses, the debates, what are you going to do? Democrats and our senators can walk and chew gum. We can walk and chew gum at the DNC. We must, as Democrats, walk and chew gum, and that's exactly what we're doing. The energy is off the charts. We'll have record turnout in Iowa. We're organizing everywhere. We're investing everywhere. And they're failing. 
They're failing at literally the one job that they had, which is count the votes. Yeah. Well, this is a disaster. This is an unmitigated disaster. It's a disaster. The Biden campaign ripping the Iowa Democratic Party. This is the death knell. If it's not the death knell, somebody should get fired. So we got to get Tom Perez in here and beat him up a little bit because it was amateur. It was a little league operation tonight. It's staggeringly embarrassing and really unacceptable for the Democratic Party. And you can get an Uber X in Des Moines tonight in about six minutes. I can't give you the election results, though. <laughs> Your response to that? Well, we can walk and chew gum. As I've said, walking and chewing gum. Let me assure you, Democrats know how to walk and chew gum. <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh hard because I'm going to have a coughing fit if I do. I've been coughing so bad during commercial breaks. Uh, but y'all, this has been a complete disaster for the Democrats. They still don't have all the results. Uh, what we do know is it looks like Bernie Sanders is right that his campaign will actually win. If I was the Sanders campaign, I would be really livid about what has happened. Uh, it has overshadowed the complete collapse of Joe Biden. The way they released the results helped Pete Buttigieg against Bernie Sanders. It gave Pete Buttigieg justification for having declared victory on the way into New Hampshire, which I think is next week. I mean, all of this conspires against Bernie Sanders. And meanwhile, you've got a, a livid Sanders camp because Bloomberg is spending so much money. Bloomberg has capitalized on this. Do you know he's going to have 2,000 campaign staffers on payroll? And he's got billions of dollars. I mean, for campaign purposes, he's got unlimited money to spend. He's outspending all the other candidates combined on, on TV and radio. It, it, it makes you wonder what Tom Steyer is doing. Tom Steyer being the other billionaire out there. And one more from Chuck Todd on, on Biden, because we need to go there. I mean, let's just be honest. It feel, you know, he's trying to say they're not, but it is going to feel contaminated to some folks no matter what. But the fact of the matter is fourth place for Joe Biden's um, is is catastrophic yeah the, the mantra I mean, there's no there, there's no other way to put the mantra for the it was catastrophic and i i'm i it's it's one of those things where i've got to um i gotta eat a little crow here a little humble pie because i've been saying all along that biden was the guy and biden should be the guy and and that's the crazy thing about this uh joe biden should be the Democrat nominee. He is was the vice president of the United States for two terms under Barack Obama, the most popular Democratic president we have for a very long time. Well, to be more popular than Bill Clinton, ultimately. Black voters love him. Hispanic voters love him. But white voters in New England, they don't like him. And he's from Delaware. Now, technically mid-Atlantic, not New England, but still. Biden should be the guy. And we've got a, a very crowded field and Biden is not pulling it off. And his donors are going to notice and voters are going to notice the IBEW, uh, which has 775,000 members, just endorsed Biden this morning. That is the, the electrical workers union. Things like that should matter for Biden. But you, you get the sense that there's no reason for Biden at this point. Biden got into the race in large part because Democrats were worried about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren going too far left. And so Biden was going to get in and people were going to rally to Joe Biden. But there's no reason to rally to Joe Biden at this point. I mean, you've got Buttigieg, you've got Klobuchar, you've got Bloomberg. 
I mean, Tom Steyer isn't really a factor. Can, can, by the way, can, can we can we pour one out for Tom Steyer here for just a minute? Seriously, I mean, this guy is a billionaire. I do believe Tom Steyer has more money than Mike Bloomberg, and Tom Steyer clearly is not in it to win it. I don't know what Tom Steyer is in it for at this point. In fact, uh, Bloomberg the uh, yesterday somebody said you got two billionaires in the race, and Bloomberg says who's the other one. Didn't even seem to know that Steyer was in the race, which is pretty remarkable. Steyer has been on a debate stage. I still like Andrew Yang myself. I mean, the guy's crazy when it comes to policy, but uh, I mean, he's a, he's a nice guy. And it is it's crazy, 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 crazy to me that uh, th- these people are they're rejecting the two term vice president of the United States. And many of the Democrats are going with a 78 year old communist. And that's causing a collective freak out on the party. But, yeah, you know, there are a lot of people in the Democratic Party who are privately whispering. And let me tell you what they're saying. And I know they're saying it because I've had conversations with some of them that while they don't want Bernie because they think Bernie would long term be bad for the party in the way they believe that Donald Trump would be bad for is long term bad for the Republican Party. There are a lot of Democrats who are privately saying, you know, I mean, he could he could pull a Trump. This could be our 2016. He could take over the party. And he could win. He could beat Trump. There are Democrats out there who think that. They think that Donald Trump was a fluke, uh, but that you can capture lightning in a bottle, so to speak, and have a second fluke in the opposite direction. And I don't know that that's true. And and there's a reason why. What, what What do people remember Donald Trump for? Donald Trump is remembered for riding that escalator in Trump Tower, saying we were going to build a wall, round up the the rapists and gangbangers from Mexico, keep America safe, and make America great again. And you can hate it, and you can say it was bad. You can say that, oh, Donald Trump, he's such a racist. We've heard all that stuff, the deplorables from Hillary Clinton, all that stuff we've heard. What is the galvanizing message with Bernie Sanders? Uh, Medicare for all, which has wiped out Elizabeth Warren's campaign. Uh, we've got to, to make peace with our enemies and make our, our, our friends our enemies. Now, uh, communism, socialism, we have too many options for deodorant. The, Bernie Sanders, there are some people who voted for Donald Trump and the data is out there. There are, there are people who voted for Donald Trump who would vote for Bernie Sanders. They voted for Donald Trump because Bernie Sanders wasn't the nominee. Uh, they're blue collar workers that they, they think the system is unfair. They want to burn it all down. And Bernie Sanders seems to want to burn them, burn it down with a hotter flame than Donald Trump. But there are a lot of people who despise Donald Trump and recognize he hasn't wrecked the economy and Bernie Sanders would. And that matters. The middle class matters. Frankly, rich white people will matter in this election and black people will matter in this election and Hispanic people will matter in this election. And many of them, I mean, take Hispanic voters. They, they may they may not like the president, but this is one of the things I think the media over overestimates here. You heard Van Jones. I, I played the clip from Van Jones in the first hour talking about uh, black voters going for the president. And it seems like the, the president is going after black voters at the expense of Hispanic voters. I don't think that's true. And I think that a lot of Democrats miss this. For example, uh, you've got a lot of Democrats out there who use the phrase Latinx. Less than 1% of the Latino community uses Latinx. In a in the margin of error, it could be negative number of Latinos use it. Only academic leftists use the phrase Latinx, and yet the Democrats use it. The Democrats say Latino more than Hispanic, and most Hispanic uh, people actually identify with the phrase Hispanic more than Latino. 
I think the Democrats and the media have largely misunderstood the Hispanic vote in this country. And here's the other thing about the Hispanic vote in this country. Do you know that the longer a Hispanic family lives in the United States, the more likely they are to identify as white and Republican? Remember what, what was the, um, who was the kid in Florida that got shot? Um, uh, Trayvon Martin, what was it? Uh, what, what was the guy who, who shot him and he was a white Hispanic or white Latino or, or what have you? George, what's his name? And people are like, wait, wait a second. What? He, he's, 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 a, a, he's a white Hispanic as opposed to a black Hispanic. What? What's going on here? The longer Hispanic family stays in this country, they tend to identify as white. They tend to identify as Christian. And they tend to vote Republican. That, frankly, is why Republicans should not fear immigration, uh, because long term, the demographics actually work in their favor. But whether you, whether you believe that or not, the, the fact of the matter is that it's it's being tough on immigration does not hurt you with the Hispanic community. In fact, uh, some of the staunchest allies for the president on immigration reform are from the Hispanic community. Why? Because they took the time to come here legally, and they really don't like the fact that there are people trying to cut the line to come. On top of that, you've got the Bernie Sanders campaign running this this very bizarre race out there that is, that is detached from from the lives of the average middle class. Bernie Sanders is a man who wrote rape fantasies and flirted with the Soviet Union and got fan mail from Soviet commissars. That's not going to play well with middle America. James Carville and Brian Williams were on MSNBC last night talking about this. Let's listen to this in part. Speak, get somebody in there. Now, I think this, this thing in Milwaukee is, is, got, is not off to a good start. I see all kinds of things that are very concerning there. And also, I'm just looking at the, at the mega polling averages. I'm looking at public opinion right now. And frankly, we got to snap back and get this thing going or I don't even think about what would happen if we had four more years of Trump. But this is so far not so good. That's my that's my analysis. As I always say, you can't run a Whole Foods race. And what I insist is still a Campbell's Soup Nation. <laughs> that was Brian Williams at the end. You can't run a Whole Foods campaign in a Campbell's Soup Nation. And he's right. You can laugh at the line, but he's right. Democrats do very. Have you ever been to a Whole Foods, by the way? Just just as a random aside, I don't have a Whole Foods near me. We got a fresh market down the road. There, there's no Whole Foods in Macon. Now, I've been to Whole Foods. I like Whole Foods. I love to grill. And, and they got some a fantastic meat selection at Whole Foods, but it's super expensive. So there's a Whole Foods uh, in Buckhead, uh, Butthead, right right across from the, the St. Regis Hotel, which tells you everything you need to know, the fanciest hotel in Atlanta. Uh, there's a Whole Foods, and that area is, is a highly progressive area in Buckhead. It is treated to the left. Everywhere there's a Whole Foods tends to be very progressive. Progressives do very well in Whole Foods because they love giving Amazon.com their money. A major Fortune 500 corporation, they give their money for their organic free-range duck and they think the rest of the nation should be able to pay $10 for a half pound of meat to eat. And, and, and this is the way the Democrats build their campaigns now. I go to Publix, except Publix, you know, in my family, we're actually from the South, just, just as, a, as a random aside. I shouldn't be going here because I should go to a commercial break. But as an aside, I'm going to hijack my, my, my own show here and, and do this, you know. I go to Publix. I live in Macon, Georgia. There, there's a Publix that I go to. It is on Bass Road near my house, and I love it. I love Publix. Publix is a great shopping experience, as opposed to Kroger, which can't decide if it actually wants to be a grocery store or a freaking Walmart. You go into Kroger, and, and you, you can't find anything. There's so much stuff. I mean, it, it gives me the heebie-jeebies to go into a Kroger, and there's so many people, and there's so much stuff. But, but... 
My family is from the South. I got to go to Kroger to get the big tub of Crisco because we make biscuits and we fry chicken in our house. And in Publix, you got the little bitty white people uh, Crisco's as, as opposed to the, the 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 Southerner pride giant tubs of Crisco where you can actually fry people. Uh, not fry, you, can, you can fry chickens and, and you can use the Crisco to make biscuits. And sometimes you got to go to Kroger to get that stuff. You, you want to pick jowl, you got to go to Kroger. Because they understand they're in the South, and, and Publix is actually Florida, which is actually Yankees. But none, nonetheless, it's a pleasant shopping experience. But good Lord, compared to Publix and Kroger, you go to Whole Foods? Dear Lord, you got to have a corn cob up your butt just to walk through the aisle with some of those people. And their, their lips, I mean, apparently everyone who has plastic surgery in Atlanta immediately goes to a Whole Foods. And I, I don't know why, but wow, the demographic of people who go to a Whole Foods, they've got a great meat selection. But you go in there and you just feel dirty by hanging out with those people. I don't know. I just go to Amazon, but I go to Publix. I go to Kroger for the big tubs of Crisco, though, because we fry chicken and make biscuits in our house. We're real people. I would be remiss if I didn't note that uh, today's show is brought to you by Dynamic Money. Uh, my financial advisor of all things uh, is Chris Burns at Dynamic Money. He also guest host for he's a friend. Uh, we got to be friends in, in the process of him teaching me. But y'all, I'm terrible at budgeting. I am. I suck at it. Uh, I used to be good at it, but uh, along the way, as I got better and better at focusing on radio and everything else. I, I, I got worse at, at doing all the financial stuff and it was great to finally, we, we were headed to the Dave Ramsey course. There's a church near us that was going to do the Dave Ramsey school. And, and several people said, Hey, you should go talk to Chris. He's local. He does that sort of thing. And, and you know, one of my hesitancies with, with the Ramsey stuff was no credit cards. And I travel a lot and I, I, I know I need a credit card and, and went with Chris. He's been fantastic. Uh, teaches how to budget. Uh, I, there, I got all sorts of accounts. I didn't know you could set up and do stuff within your bank to make sure money's pulled out and put into accounts to build an emergency fund. I had no idea I could do all this stuff. And he, he's he's been teaching us. Uh, I still got a ways to go in this, but Lord, he and my wife have conspired against me as well to make me go on a vacation for spring break. I I, I normally don't go on vacation because I mean I there will be days that I got to miss for work and stuff, but I, I hate taking time off because I, I actually this is really fun for me. And so now that they, they've apparently even set up an account and put money in it and I got to go on a vacation and I've already got money. And so I don't have to be stressed out about paying for it. So that is all to say, uh, if you need uh, to learn money skills, they can even do it over FaceTime or video chat with you. You don't even have to go to Atlanta uh, where they're headquartered. Um, but uh, go to dynamicmoney.com. Y'all Chris Burns and his team. I cannot recommend them enough. If, if you want to, they can handle your retirement. They're not commissioned. It, it is a flat fee base. So they're not going to try to sell you stuff that makes them money. They're going to help you and uh, dynamic money.com good sponsors of the show good people and they can actually help you get sound financial footing and get a retirement plan okay a word for a sponsor you know the old joke a crossfitter a vegan and an atheist walk into a bar and we all know because they wouldn't stop telling everybody well i i feel compelled to tell you i, I have finally started going back to crossfit to get in shape and it's great i've lost 15 pounds uh but I don't go every day, and one of the things that you can do at home is what I do, and that is Discover Echelon, which is actually a really cool multimedia platform and equipment. To get in shape in 2020, you don't have to join a gym. You don't have to pay a ton for overpriced fitness equipment. You don't have to pay a ton for a Peloton. The best way to get in shape is with 
Echelon. Go to echelonfit.com. Discover their EX1 connected fitness bikes. It offers high quality at home cycling experience at less than half the price of the Peloton. They've got other awesome equipment as well. They've got live and on demand studio classes. They've got one of those awesome mirrors. They've got, you can do it on TV. It's just, it's great. Go to echelonfit.com slash Eric. Learn about their limited time free Apple iPad and complete details of this exclusive offer. Echelon, it's your time. And again, don't pay a ton for a Peloton. Go to Echelon. That's E-C-H-E-L-O-N fit.com slash Eric. Echelonfit.com slash Eric. On the days when I'm not in the gym, I'm with Echelon and it works. I'm here. I'm here. I'm just trying not to hack up my lung. My goodness gracious. <laughs> uh, one day this congestion will go away. Uh, thank you for all of these suggestions. Uh, my mom says I need Dayquil and also that I got the whole story about the the, the, the Eric spelling wrong or, or some such. But I'm just going what my cousin Urban told me. So in any event, uh, we got to move on to other stuff, don't we? Because there's a lot of other stuff to, to, to move on to. One of the things that I want to talk about, and, and yes, uh, I will get into some of the Georgia stuff. I, or, you know what? Actually, let me. We are just in Georgia right now. It, it, is, it is my dream to have a, a nationwide, highly influential syndicated radio show. But we, we've started small in Georgia. We're doing it all ourselves, uh, which reminds me, if any of you are retired and, and want to be a small ad guy to, trying to help us build up our ad revenue and whatnot, uh, shoot me an email, eric at theresurgent.com. But now, the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, has said he wants to get rid of a lot of the standardized tests. And this is actually something I feel really strongly about and agree with him completely on. And you need to understand why it is. So I've got relatives and friends who are teachers. And my relatives and friends who are teachers tell me that they feel more and more like they are bureaucrats and less and less like they are teachers. They spend a great deal of time focusing on teaching tests and paperwork and spend, spend hardly any time anymore on actually teaching kids things they can use. You know, here's just, just as, as a random aside that is actually directly related. What I, so I went to law school, went, went to Mercer University uh, School, the Walter F. George. For those of you down in Macon, it is the Walter F. George School of Law. And the, the fact that the, the, the PC Nicks uh, there at, at, at the law school, the, the, the hip, hippie, politically correct professors there don't want to call it the Walter F. George School of Law and, and come on with this whole name. We're just calling it the Mercy University School of Law. It is the Walter F. George School of Law, by God. And that's what it used to say on the sign until you politically correct, nonsensical people decided that oh, I'm offended by the name of the law school that I willingly worked at forever, knowing who this person was until it was safe for me to decide that I'm brave enough to, to be with everybody else in PC culture. It's just garbage. It is the Walter F. George School of Law. I went there. And one of the, the things that I realized quickly in law school was that you're not actually learning the law in law school. I, I learned very little law in law school. I learned how to rethink. Uh, you can't learn the law. The, the U.S. code is massive. On top of the U.S. code, you've got the, the, the Georgia code. If you're a Georgia lawyer, 
And so what you do is you learn how to research and you learn how to think and you learn how to argue and you learn how to put your put your words on a page and, and have them make sense and be persuasive. And you certainly do learn the basics. You learn contract law and you learn property law. And, and I, I did a lot of I wanted to do transactional law. I didn't want to be in court. Uh, I did a lot of transactional work. I did uh, I, I did uh, securities and bankruptcy. I did estates. And that is largely where I decided to to do a lot of practice. And I, you know, it's, it was remarkable how law school was the most challenging educational environment I'd had since I grew up in, in elementary and middle school and and into junior high school. And, And the reason I say that is I grew up in Dubai. I went to an American school and just to put this in perspective for you, my biology textbook in eighth grade was the same biology 101 textbook that uh, my freshman year of college had that that gives you kind of a, a level of where we were uh, academically at the school abroad. I, I was actually shocked. Now, obviously, it was updated. It had been a number of years, but it, it was the same book, my eighth grade biology book and my freshman year in college biology book, same book. It was remarkable to see it, it, when I moved back to public school in Louisiana after having grown up in Dubai, uh, I spent most of my day sitting in the front office. I, I, I kind of ran the school. It was actually kind of funny. Uh, you wanted to get into school late. I was the guy. Now, it, it was it was it was interesting. And it was it was remarkable to see and we took one standardized test a year and then I got to Louisiana and you took like three standardized tests a year. And now you, in some schools, you take five standardized tests a year. And you no longer learn to think. I had to go to law school and and relearn how to research and think and stuff. And uh, the governor is concerned and teachers I talk to all the time are concerned that uh, teachers have become automatons who just give tests and students are automatons who just take tests. And there's no real academic learning. You learn how to take the test. And the governor wants to change that. And I, I really commend him. On doing that, I I commend the governor on wanting to get rid of all these tests. Frankly, if I were king for a day, hang on a second. Muted my microphone to clear my voice. If I were king for a day, here's the thing I would do. I would do what I did growing up in Dubai. We would take a standardized test. At the time, it was the Stanford Achievement Test. Uh, It's now, I think, the the California Achievement Test. They they rebranded it. You can do the Iowa test. But they would use that test. I know this is horrible. You're not supposed to do this in America. They would use that test and then they would place you in the next grade in a classroom based on similarly situated kids. So all of the kids who did poorly in math would take math together in a smaller class with a really good teacher. The kids who were in the middle, they had a larger class working on the averages and the kids who were excelled would have an advanced class with another really good teacher. And same with the English. And and so the, the kids who weren't great at math in the smaller class environment could excel in the next year. If they got a little better, they could be shifted into the into the mid-sized class with with more kids. The kids who continue to do poorly based on the, the achievement tests would get remedial help. It was fantastic. And, and you're not supposed to do that in this country, I've been told by people. And it, 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 that's why you should take a standardized test. See, not just where you are, but also where you need to be the next year. But we don't do that anymore. It's all about grading the school and grading the teacher, not actually helping the kid. And that's the problem. So good for the governor doing that. Phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Robin from Middle Georgia, you are next. Welcome. 
Yes, I'm glad to be on the air with you. This is first time talking to you, and I'm listening from what you've been saying. But yeah, I noticed now, as for the Google education, uh, that's what I said. Now, need uh, students now getting a Google education. Right. That is, that they don't know anything about uh, anything, so they just, just call up on Google to find out the answer. But I didn't know what I'd call you about. I was calling you about uh, what if the uh, Democrats decide to filibuster the the process is this afternoon about the acquittal uh the convict them they were to filibuster on that process uh, what would happen oh, that, if that's they a great to... question uh so so the answer is uh you're not allowed to filibuster an impeachment vote uh you're it's actually prohibited in the Senate rules uh the impeachment trial operates outside the parameters of the standing rules of the Senate now there are standing rules in the Senate that apply to impeachment but those standing rules of impeachment say they'll create rules for each impeachment They'll model them on the standard rules, but they prohibit filibuster. So each person is allowed to give a speech. Each person is allotted time to speak. Uh, and once all the speeches are up, they vote. They can't actually filibuster. Each, they divide up the clock. In a standard Senate speech, that's such a good question, Robin. Thank you. In a standard Senate setting, when the Senate yields to a senator to speak, that senator can speak for as long as he wants to speak. With impeachment, you actually are allotted a certain amount of time per party. And if one senator uses up the entire clock for that party, no one else on that side can speak. And at the end of it, there's a vote. Uh, Mitt Romney is signaling he'll be one of the last people to speak. He'll speak at 2 o'clock this afternoon. The vote will happen this evening, uh, well after we are off air. And they will, they're going to acquit the president. Susan Collins has come out today and said she's going to acquit the president. Lisa Murkowski is going to acquit the president. Lamar Alexander is going to acquit the president. Uh, that leaves Mitt Romney as the only undecided Republican, and he too is going to acquit the president from what I'm told. Joe Manchin of West Virginia is going to acquit the president from what I'm told. And, and there's a wild card in Kristen Cinema of Arizona. Did y'all see Kristen Cinema at the State of the Union last night? She stood up a lot with the Republicans, and it's made a lot of progressives mad. Now, the crazy thing here is Kristen Cinema, don't, don't be too enamored with her because she is an opportunist. Remember, Kristen Cinema was a Code Pink marcher. Kristen Cinema, you know Code Pink. Code Pink, they're they're the protesters who actually dressed up as giant female body parts, dressed in in uh, swirly pink lacy fabric design. Well, it looked like pink hot dog buns, but it was supposed to be something else. And Kristen Cinema was one of those Code Pinkers. And now she's a, a middle-of-the-road uh, Arizona senator who makes John McCain look even more partisan as a Democrat than, than he already did. She replaced McCain in, in the, well, I guess she didn't replace McCain in the Senate. Um, she replaced Jeff Flake in the Senate. But she was standing up with the Republicans and cheering, and it makes you wonder, who is the real Kristen Cinema? Was, was she just an opportunist as a Code Pink warrior or what? Uh, but she certainly supported the president last night, and there's a big question as to whether or not she will go on with the Democrats and and side with them over the president of the United States. Uh, by the way, as a programming note, uh, Jerron Smith is, works for the president, is the assistant to the president and the deputy director of the office of, of what is it, American Innovation. 
and he's going to join me at the bottom of the hour to talk about the State of the Union address. We will we will work our way back to that. Uh, the phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-973-7425. Uh, I, I want to jump back into other news. There's actually some breaking news I want to get to that involves, of all things, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. You don't hear a lot about that. The Democrats hate the law, and it turns out that law just helped a bunch of progressives avoid going to jail. I will explain when we come back. You know, I got to send out a recipe and I haven't decided which one, but if you want on the recipe list, text the word recipe to 33777 uh, and um, I will, it's probably going to be tomorrow when I send it out and I will be here just, just so you guys know, you may be hearing my voice on NPR uh, in the next week on Friday. If you're, if you happen to be in the Birmingham area and I know, interestingly enough, I know we have listeners and I don't know how they're listening because uh, we're not on in Birmingham right now, but but uh, I will be in Birmingham. I got to leave from Macon after I do the show and drive to Birmingham to do an event for National Public Radio. I am doing a um, it's a it's a conversation with someone on the other side, uh, someone on the political left, and essentially to show that it is possible in this day and age to still have civil conversation with people with whom you disagree and, and to talk about how your worldview was formed and that there, there's no problem with a conservative worldview or a progressive worldview. It's how you were raised and your experiences in life that shape you. And so I'm excited to be a part of it. It, it was a, a real honor that they asked me to be a part of it. And you'll be able to hear it, I guess, on on uh, different radio stations around the country. We'll be running. We'll we'll play part of it here as well. Uh, it will be at uh, the University of Alabama, Birmingham, February seventh. Uh, I think it starts at seven p.m. in Birmingham, which I rarely ever get to go to Birmingham. So I'm kind of I'm excited to to head over there. Now, uh, other thing to to. Um, run by you guys is this story. Uh, the dispatch has it from David French about RIFRA. You will recall, if you will, that the Democrats are opposed to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. In fact, here in Georgia, the the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, has been conspiring with Democrats for a number of years to block passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And several years ago, Nathan Deal had campaigned on passing the uh, RIFRA. And then once he got elected in an election year uh, where the the legislature was on the ballot and he was not, he orchestrated the, this dog and pony show in the legislature where they would pass RIFRA and then he would veto it. So they could all say they voted for it and he would veto it uh, so that it would never become law because uh, a lot of our Republicans in, in the legislature put Hollywood values ahead of Georgia values, so they're opposed to protecting religious liberty. In fact, Marty Harbin in the state Senate has dropped a piece of legislation today that will protect faith-based adoption agencies. Um, there is growing persecution around the country of faith-based adoption agencies. A lot, of, a lot of Democrats want to shut them down. Harbin wants to protect them. I don't know that it'll make it through the, the, the state house as long as David Ralston is there. Uh, but in any event, uh, RIFRA, the federal version of RIFRA, has has protected a bunch of progressive activists. A federal court in Arizona has reached a decision about those progressive activists who were trying to leave food and water in the desert for illegal immigrants. Uh, the, let me read you what David French says. A uh, federal court in Arizona reached a decision Monday that perfectly illustrates uh, RIFRA. Using RIFRA, it overturned the conviction of four people affiliated with the Unitarian Universalist Church who were prosecuted for violations of the regulations governing the Cabeza Prairie Wildlife Refuge. The defendants were convicted after entering the refuge without necessary permits 
and leaving supplies of food and water in an area of the desert wilderness where people frequently die of dehydration and exposure. They were trying to save the lives of illegal immigrants who were making their way across one of the most extreme environments in North America. The four volunteers argued that their actions, taken with the avowed goal of mitigating death and suffering, were exercising their religious faith. The case represented a classic application of RIFRA. At issue was a generally applicable federal criminal regulation. It did not specifically target religious faith, but in this instance, it burdened the free exercise of the defendant's religious beliefs. The defendants came from varying religious backgrounds, but they each testified to the sacred and spiritual nature of their effort to save human life. As the court noted, the depth, importance, and centrality of their beliefs caused defendants to restructure their lives to engage in this volunteer work, and these progressive activists were protected because of RIFRA, uh, or the very RIFRA that some Republicans in Georgia don't want to pass. Uh, remarkable. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Justin, uh, you're up next. Welcome to the program. Oh. Hi, Justin. Excuse me for a second. I got to swallow. All right. I'm at lunch right now. Hey, well, you, you okay, do that. Yeah. I've been coughing, so go for it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I was in the Air Force for 20 uh, years, and I've been at Robbins as a civilian for 20 years. I am a severe dyslexic, but I have been very successful in my career as far as what I do. My only trouble is with standardized testing, that multiple choice is a death nail to anybody with my condition. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't mind standardized testing, but what I would like to see is an alternative if you cannot pass a test. Look, I think that's give you a test a different way. I, I, I agree with you. And now there are more and more schools actually that are doing that, but they got to get all sorts of special exceptions. My understanding is that there's all sorts of paperwork they got to go through yeah. to be able to do that. You're right. Uh, and there are kids. I mean, dyslexia is something. I mean, so you're, you're at Robbins Air Force Base. You, you're working there as a civilian employee. Uh, and people, I, I've got plenty of friends who have dyslexia as a matter of fact. Uh, and my wife actually has the, oh, what's the different one? It, it's not dyslexia for words. It's for numbers. She gets, I can't say my wife does that which is why she doesn't balance the checkbook and, and she she's had this forever <laughs> yes um <laughs> i shouldn't say that someone's gonna say oh your husband's talking about you people listed but seriously the the you, letters are numbers and yes you're right uh, justin thanks very much for the phone call and that's something that our our, our wrote standard uh, education in this country does a terrible job of of dealing with situations like that unless you go through special ed and, and if you've got dyslexia or, or you've got the the dyslexia for numbers you don't need to be in special ed and but you, sometimes you got to be and, and justin's right and it, these we have pigeonholed ourselves in this country so much and for those of you who just turned in you're wondering how did i get from from riffer to this well at the beginning of this hour pointing out governor kemp is now leading the charge through reform of education in georgia he wants to get rid of a lot of the standardized tests he wants to narrow down the standardized tests that are necessary in the state and he wants to use them more to assist students as opposed to punishing teachers and frankly there is a real issue in this country and in this state where teachers are being punished because kids are doing bad on standardized tests and the teachers they're they can't be babysitters and that's why they're getting punished the the kids are coming from failing homes they're, they're hungry uh some of these kids they're having to take care of their their brothers and sisters and get them ready for school in the mornings they're from broken homes and the teachers are getting punished for these kids coming from broken homes and unable to sit and concentrate and take a test and that's unfortunate and good for the governor really committed to improving teachers out there and their lives in schools 
man, I think that's going to go a long way for him come 2022. When we come back, we got somebody from the White House to talk about the State of the Union. Well, it looks like Doug Jones, the senator from Alabama, is going to vote for conviction of the president in the impeachment, and that is going to ensure his defeat uh, in uh, Alabama. And it looks like Jeff Sessions, I think the, the last polling I saw, Sessions, may very well reclaim his seat. Uh, fascinating dynamics at play there. It's, we're going to have a bipartisan uh, we have so few moments of bipartisanship in Washington, and it's remarkable that the president's impeachment uh, will wind up being a bipartisan moment of acquittal for the president of the United States in the same way that uh, the only votes uh, for impeachment in the House were partisan. It was a bipartisan vote against impeachment in the House. It'll be a bipartisan acquittal in the Senate. That should send a message to the brilliant uh, minds of the Washington press corps who said Nancy Pelosi was a strategic genius uh, and her strategic uh, genius, a strategery, has gotten President uh, Trump his highest approval ratings in office uh, between her and the economy. And, and then tearing up that speech last night, even Democrats today are saying it was bad form. Uh, joining me now on the phone from from Washington, D.C., is someone who knows all about this. Uh, Jerron Smith works for the president as deputy assistant to the president and deputy director of the Office of American Innovation. Uh, welcome to the program. How are you? Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm doing well. So, uh, all right, let, let's get into the meat of this this last night with the president. Uh, we, he's got some pretty bold plans, and the the conservative in me is like, ah, we're really going to go bankrupt as a nation here with all the spinning. But it, it, the, the, the guy who just enjoyed the speech and spectacle last night, he's got some initiatives out there that, that are going to create jobs for people and actually expand the wealth and opportunity in the country for a lot of people. That's exactly right. What we're trying to do is uh, restore America's strength. Um, and, and the president, through his leadership, is um, basically bringing that American comeback. I mean, um, from a spending point of view, if we have more people in the system that's getting access to the uh, American dream, that's going to be huge growth for our country. And with the 7 million jobs unfilled, you know, um, it's, it's very important that we fill it with Americans. And so it, it contributes to our country and help us be, become more competitive in the 21st century. And so um, it's been an honor to serve under this president and, and, and usher in a new age of bipartisanship. You know, it doesn't get talked about enough on, on mainstream media, but we've done so much bipartisanship under this, under this president's leadership. You, know, you look at USMCA, paid family leave. I mean, we can really go down the list of um, doing the people's work um, despite, um, you know, Democrats' obstruction um, and trying to, you know, throw people off with things that don't even matter to the American people. Now, let's talk about the Opportunity Zones. For those who don't know, can you just explain what they are? Sure. So Opportunity Zones is a, um, a new tax law that uh, came about through the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, which would allow for tax defer or capital gains to be rolled over into designated census tracts. These are usually low-income census tracts areas and uh, designated by the governor. Um, they call them opportunity zones. And you can roll those capital gains into these zones and um, not have to pay capital gains tax. And you get um, increased incentives um, and then a discount on that capital gains if you keep uh, uh, the resources in those uh, low-income zones um, for, for a good amount of time. For, for example, if you put it in there for 10 years, you won't have to pay that capital gains tax. And that's been huge because uh, many of these communities haven't had investment or capital appreciation um, in decades. 
Well, and, and for job creation and everything else, this seems to be very much a, a play for the president. <clears throat> if I can just get into the politics of it here just briefly, that the president in Atlanta this summer had a rally saying he really is aggressively wanting to court the African-American community. And Opportunity Zones, of course, in addition to Hispanic communities in the country, you've got a lot of Opportunity Zones in, in minority communities, particularly the African-American community in, in inner cities in this country that stand to benefit by this sort of thing. That's exactly right. And it's about shared prosperity. Um, individuals that live in these uh, low-income census tracts need access to capital, and Opportunity Zones allow for access to capital. It allows for um, businesses that are in these low-income census tracts to grow their businesses. Um, and then it also allows for people who live there um, to get access to more jobs. And we didn't just stop there. The president signed an executive order that created the White House Opportunity Revitalization Capital. Uh, council. And what we're doing with that council is putting $20 billion worth of federal resources um, into these zones for economic development, for um, education and workforce, for entrepreneurship, um, and for safe communities. Um, and, and through that leadership, we're encouraging the states um, and the cities to do the same thing. And we've seen some um, amazing progress as a result of that. Now, let, let's talk about the First Step Act for a minute. Uh, and if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Jerron Smith, who works as the deputy assistant to the president, deputy director of the Office of American Innovation. Uh, the president made a, a campaign ad Sunday during the Super Bowl on that, that it was tied into the First Step Act and getting a lot of people out of jail who are first-time offenders or nonviolent offenders. And uh, living in Macon, Georgia, where I am, I, I, there are plenty of people in our community who have benefited from this. And it was one of the remarkable bipartisan successes thus far of this administration. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, right now, since the passage of the First Step Act, over 2,500 inmates have received sentence reductions under the Fair Sentencing Act provision and um, are, are due for compassionate release as well. N nearly 400 um, elderly and terminally ill individ um, individuals have um, been released um, from custody. Um, and the president has also committed to uh, second chance hiring. Uh, we've done things like uh, um, increase um, vocational training opportunities. Um, we have the, the Second Chance Pell program that we've ex um, expanded, um, and, we're, and we're figuring out a way to reduce recidivism um, and, and, and leverage this forgotten community to be a part of the 21st century um, economy. Uh, when the president talked about working for all Americans, that included um, people who were um, formerly incarcerated, uh, and, 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 and we're allowing for them to be a part of the American dream is not only transforming, transforming communities, um, but it's helping some of those low-income census tracts become safer. Um, and so that's, that's a commitment we have there. And uh, well, we got uh, a lot of work ahead that we, we plan to continue to do. Now, it's not just Opportunity Zones and, and the First Step Act. There was that remarkable moment last night of the mother and child who's going to get an Opportunity Scholarship in Pennsylvania. It, it seems, uh, getting the hints from the president's speech last night and some of his plain statements, that he recognizes uh, school choice and education is, is really one of the big civil rights issues of the day, trying to get people better education. That's exactly right. We, we should create a system that lets the, um, the parents decide. And it's unfortunate that, like, um, we're, we're going to make low-income individuals um, have to live with a lack of choice and opportunity and um, send their kids to failing schools. And so I had the, uh, the great privilege of uh, visiting a, a SLAM school that was started by Pitbull in Miami, Florida, um, at a school that takes um, you know, like uh, mostly that's like 100 percent of individuals who are from low income areas sometimes are three grades behind um, and they go to this school and uh, at 100 percent graduation rate um, end up 
graduating with a degree and then go out to do uh, amazing things. And so um, the, this is the promise that the president has is um, encouraging more localities to allow for uh, opportunity for, for all people um, through these education um, scholarships. And so we're, we're going to um, push Congress to to allow for more funding um, for this because it's, it's about getting everyone to have a, have a chance at the American dream. Um, and the president's committed to that. We're in an election year. Everything is, is hyper-partisan. What is the White House, what do you guys in the White House think realistically you might be able to get out of Congress this year on some of this stuff? Well, you know, it, it, it's always tough to tell. Um, at the end of the day, uh, the president has done some bipartisan reforms um, throughout his whole administration. I was telling people that we uh, we got more bipartisanship out of a Republican Congress um, than having the Democrats in the House. Um, but, you know, like I said, we just did permanent funding for HBCUs at the end of the year, um, paid family leave policy at the end of the year, um, as well as banning the box um, at the end of the year. So it's it's quite possible we can um, push something over the finish line because at the end of the day, it's going to be hard for um, folks on the left to uh, vote against things that are right, like like USMCA. Uh, when, when it's empowering the American workers and, and their families and these people live in their um, backyard, it's hard for them to say no to it. And so um, I believe in the president's leadership because he's he's willing to engage. Um, and, and, and if we're not engaging federally, we're engaging with um, Democrats on the ground in, in some of these cities. You know, we're looking to do a revitalization summit uh, in, uh, um, in North Carolina this Friday. Um, and we're working with uh, a lot of local leaders that are on the le- other side. So um, the leadership all over the place. And uh, we look forward to what's ahead. Yeah, last question for you on this. Is the president planning any sort of executive actions on these things and in, in, if Congress is a bit recalcitrant? Um, that's quite possible. You know, we'll have to see. Um, we'll we'll have to see what he does once we we cross that bridge. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to continue to work with anyone that's committed to helping the American people. Um, this is about the great American comeback and uh, um, creating a, a strong America, a successful America. In order to do that, um, we need to put politics aside and focus on the people. Jaron Smith, thank you so much for stopping by today. I know you got a busy day uh, doing this with a lot of folks, not just us. So thank you very much for your time. Amen. Thank you so much, Eric. Absolutely. Jaron Smith, he is the deputy assistant to the president, uh, the deputy director of the Office of American Innovation in the White House. You know, what is interesting here is, uh, let me just give you some data. Let me not speak, uh, give you my opinion. Let me actually give you facts. Here's the margin of victory among black voters based on the exit polls. And, and by the way, the exit polls, uh, don't be skeptical of the exit polls. The exit polls properly adjusted are actually the best benchmark we have in this country of elections. And they, they do very much hold up. Uh, ask pollsters on the right and the left. Uh, you get a lot of fringe people say, oh, the exits are terrible. Well, yeah, the exits are terrible if you only take the, the basics of the exits. If you actually take the total of the exits, remember the exit polling on Election Day comes out in three phases, a morning, an afternoon, and a late evening. And... Uh, a lot of time what happens is people take the morning and the afternoon, they adjust them, and they say, oh, here's where the exit polls are trending. But Republicans tend to actually vote in the evenings, and so you got to take the entire day's worth of exit polling to get them. That's why they get a bad rap. People forget there are three parts to the exit polling. you got to pay attention to them, and uh, so it just just – you, you gotta you gotta understand the exits as totality properly adjusted are very good and in Barack Obama in 2008 got 91 percent of the black vote in 2012 he got 87 percent of the black vote in 2016 Hillary Clinton got 81 percent of the black vote now 81 percent and I and I'm reading from my buddy Logan Dobson on on uh, Twitter poor guy I gotta give him I gotta say something nice about him because he's a 
49ers fan. Uh, 81%, 91% big wins for Democrats, yes. But another five percentage point swing for the Republicans would be a million more national votes for the GOP. And the margins matter here. Among demographic groups that only one party or the other wins or loses big, if you can take a group, you win by 55%, to winning that group by 65%, that can be just as consequential as winning a swing demographic that splits evenly. Hillary Clinton was winning all the swing voter groups you could want. She did well in the suburbs and in the battleground counties. But when you look at rural counties, Mitt Romney may have won them by 50%, but Trump was winning them 60 or 70%. Those votes mattered the same. You get 5% of the black vote in this country to shift to Donald Trump, and it can be done. Ron DeSantis did this in Florida. That is how Ron DeSantis is governor of Florida today. And what Trump is doing is largely the Ron DeSantis strategy of trying to divide the black vote, and he only needs 5% of it. He doesn't even necessarily need 5% of it. But if he can get 5% of it, it is going to be remarkable— what the president is able to pull off in in terms of an electoral victory. And and again, this goes back to Van Jones and what he was saying this morning. Let me go full circle on this and and play you again the the extended portion of what Van Jones had to say on CNN last night, uh, because it actually is remarkably accurate uh, what he was saying. You'll you'll hear a little swoosh thing in the graphic here. But listen to Van Jones last night. I I played this in the first hour at the exact same time, as a matter of fact. Played it at 9.48 this morning. But it is worth hearing this in its entirety. And it is something a lot of Democrats are being dismissive of, and they shouldn't be, and he's right. Well, if I can restructure, building all that up and then messing up my audio routing. Here we go. I I think the the last 24 hours have been a big wake-up call for Democrats. That's what I think. Um, The Iowa caucus was a debacle. uh, And this was a very strong speech, and it shows what he thinks he needs to do to win. I think we have to be very clinical about this. I think you're exactly right. Uh, he knows he's got to give a lot of red meat to his base, and he gave it. What for religious liberty, abortion, all of it, the military, etc. Um, but he's doing something else, and it has to do with how he's going to manage race in this thing. And there seems to be a trade-off between the Latinos and the African Americans. That's what you see. He, he went hard on the sanctuary city stuff. Mm-hmm. That is very, very uh, disturbing. It turns out sanctuary cities are actually safer uh, than non-sanctuary city, city, uh, cities. The Cato Institute. Uh, which is libertarian has come out and said uh, that you know, immigrants are committing less crime. So uh, for some reason, he thinks that doubling down on the anti-immigrant piece is a big part of his thing. At the same time, uh, a warning to Democrats, what he was saying to African-Americans can be effective. You may not like it, but he mentioned HBCUs. Our black colleges have been struggling for a long time. A bunch of them have gone under. Uh, he threw a lifeline to them uh, in real life in, in his budget. He talked about that. He talked about the criminal justice reform. He talked about opportunity zones. This, school choice. He talked about school choice. Issue, yeah. Listen, wake up. He doesn't have to be effective. Exactly. He has to be effective to move margins and key states. And, and the yeah. thing about it is, and I think that we, we got to wake up, folks. There's a whole bubble thing that goes on. We say, well, he said, asshole nations, therefore all black people are going to hate him forever. That ain't necessarily so. And I think what you're going to see him do is say, you may not like my rhetoric, but look at my results, look at my record to black people. And if he narrow casts that, it's going to be effective, which means as we move through this primary process, we've got to pay a lot more attention both to what's going on with the Latino vote. Um, is, is, are we going to get a benefit in terms of you know, having them respond? And with the black vote, is there going to be a split off, for, especially for black male voters? 
We got to be clinical about this stuff. We get so emotional about it. That was a that was a warning to us, a warning shot across the bow of Democrats that he's going after enough black folks to cause those problems. It's not just the white suburban voters. He's going after black folks. Yes, yes, he is, and it's obvious. And I, I do think that Van gets one thing wrong here. I don't think the president's rhetoric necessarily turns off a lot of Hispanic voters. Democrats are convinced he does. I'm not actually aware of polling that shows that, uh, that the Democrats will actually gain Hispanic voters. There's a baseline for the Democrats when it comes to Hispanic and black voters. And the president just needs to improve those margins. And I think he can on both fronts. And if he can, he becomes a dominant, dominant political force headed into 2020. And by the way, that helps the Republicans overall as well, particularly when they're in a fight for the Senate. It matters. One of the things that, frustrates me is how many people have willingly been broken by the president of the United States. Uh, they've allowed themselves to be broken. They, they've succumbed to their hatred of the man in a way that poisons themselves. I, I've got friends of mine who I, I've got to keep at arm's length now because they 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 have a burning hatred for the president. And, and as long as I was not supporting him, everything was hunky-dory, and, and I could occasionally say something nice about him, and, and they would give me a pass. But, but I said I'm going to vote for him in 2020, given him or them. It, it's, it's obvious for me I'm going to go with him. And their searing hatred of the man has just polluted their ability to get along with those who disagree with them. And by the way, there, there are people on, on the, the Trump side. Listen, I, I lost friends after 2016. We had to move our kids. Our, our kids were in our church's school, and we had to move them to a different school because our kids were being bullied at school because of me saying I wasn't going to vote for the president in 2016. Uh, and they lost friends. They, they they actually lost a lot of friends. My my son was shoved into the dirt on the playground by a kid uh, because their his parent that kid's parents were mad at me. Uh, my kids got chased through a store, uh, being yelled at by a guy because of me. We had to move them to a different school. It, it's amazing how the president uh, has this superpower of of making other people behave the way they think he behaves, and oftentimes it's overhyped. And, and I, I think about that with Rush Limbaugh now, who is a very dear friend, and you do need to know that. And, and I realize a lot of people in politics say friends, and uh, Rush and I are, are not the the greatest friends, uh, but he's a very dear friend to me. Uh, we talk. Uh, he has given me a lot of advice over the years. I have filled in for him in the past a number of times, and he's just a wonderful human being. And to see people I know who are conservatives who have long listened to Rush Limbaugh, but oh my goodness, he's sold out and he's now a terrible person and on and on because of Trump. It, it makes me sad for people who can't seem to be happy because Donald Trump is president. You know, when when Barack Obama was president, there, there were conservatives I know who were in the same boat who were, were deeply pessimistic about the country because, uh, because he, the president was not the guy they wanted and, and they thought he was bad. And it seems to be for a lot of people who politics has supplanted religion, even people who go to church on a regular basis, politics has supplanted God as, as their religion. And they get so worked up about it. And life is too short for that. Y'all, if you can't have friends who disagree with you politically, I, I, I think you're probably a shallow person. And, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, and some of you will take it that way, but some of my best friends are people who disagree with me fundamentally on politics. And we get along great because we have so many things in common outside of politics. 
And the inability to to be nice or to just say, you know what, Rush Limbaugh has stage four lung cancer. He revitalized an entire American industry, uh, created jobs for hundreds of thousands of people. And through his work revitalizing radio, the man deserves the Presidential Medal of Freedom. By God, if Gloria Steinem deserved it, Rush Limbaugh certainly does. He's done more for Americans.